Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. And might I just encourage you as church family, keep the prayer list since you are going to keep the worship guide handy in your Bible and in your devotion time and in your prayer closet. Use the prayer list daily. Go back over these prayer concerns. There are many. And lift them up to the Lord and and just make that a a daily part of your uh, prayer practice. This morning I invite you to open your Bibles uh, back to 1 Peter as we walk through this wonderful epistle. And as we look at chapter 3, or continue looking at chapter 3, and and throughout the epistle, first epistle of Peter, we see embedded within the writings of the Apostle Peter what I consider to be a, a wonderful theology on suffering. Um, and, and rightfully so, as you consider the audience that Peter is writing to, primarily first century Christians, who find themselves facing uh, episodes, uh, events of suffering. Uh, they, they face uh, ostracism and persecution from the Jews. They, these first century Christians are finding themselves being singled out, and, 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 uh, and they suffer at the hands of a pagan society in which they live. So, unfortunately, tragically, many of them, as a part of their daily life, find themselves suffering. And I believe, without sounding like a prophet of doom and gloom, I believe for Christians in the future, in this country, and around the world, that suffering will become more prevalent and and probably more intensified. And it's important that God's people understand that God's Word doesn't is not silent when it comes to the matter of suffering because His people do suffer and they will suffer. I was reading some, some uh, summary from the Global Watchdog Ministry, Open Doors, and conservatively they report that hundreds of millions of Christians worldwide face persecution. And in a recent report they noted that 25 of the 50 persecuted countries all seem to have an increase in hostility towards Christians. And I think it's important because we include in our, in our kingdom prayer concerns praying for persecuted brothers and sisters. Folks, it's a real, it's a real problem. According to statistics compiled by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, in just the past 12 months, let this settle in, in just the last 12 months, 90,000 believers have been killed because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. That's one person every six minutes. I don't think the average American understands that and grasps that reality. But if you're living in one of those countries, I promise you, if you're in, in, in Sudan or North Korea or Iraq, Iran, take your pick. They know it. Vastly more believers are being persecuted in ways that seldom or never get much news coverage. You don't see the secular news agencies talking about the plight of Christians being persecuted around the world. Now folks, don't hear me wrong. I I have deep compassion for uh, Muslims. I would love to see every Muslim on the face of the earth come to know Jesus Christ as the true Messiah and to be saved. And I do believe that we need to extend to them understanding and courtesy and compassion. But you don't hear, you hear far more reports about Christians' attitudes towards Muslims than you do persecuted Christians around the world. It's almost like it's a mute 
matter to the secular press. Christians need to know that so that we can be praying for our brothers and sisters. Another study reports that a half of a billion Christians, half a billion Christians today, live in circumstances where they are prohibited from freely expressing their faith. Those dear brothers and sisters that suffer so intensely because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they understand what Peter is saying. They find comfort from the words of the Apostle Peter when he talks about the, 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 the role of suffering in the life of the believer. But even though, you know, I feel guilty when I even broach the subject of suffering, living in America, a land of opportunity and freedoms, and, and we have a government that, for the most part, protects our freedom to be able to worship, and, and so we don't know what that kind of suffering really is. But the fact is, the fact is, as God's people, as children of God, we do suffer. Suffering is a part of life. And so he's right, Peter's writing to Christians and he's helping them to understand how we respond in our times of suffering. One of the first things I would like for you to see as we begin to look here in chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, is the blessing in suffering for righteousness. Now I emphasize for suffering, suffering for righteousness. There's a distinction. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. Peter says, and who is he? Who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled. We all understand. That not all suffering that we encounter in this life. Is at the hand of spiritual foes. We understand that it's inevitable. Because suffering is the inevitable consequence of living in a fallen sin cursed world. We suffer from diseases. We suffer from natural catastrophes. We suffer from all types of things that happen in this life. Accidents. But when we do suffer because of our faith, Peter has something to say to us because Jesus Christ has instructed us in the Gospels about the matter of suffering. He made it clear to his own disciples that they would suffer in this world. He says, marvel not that this world hates you knowing full well that it hated me first. But as we look at what Peter says in verse 13, I think it's interesting that he gives this, this insight. The Christian's zeal for good, for good may temper their suffering. The Christian's zeal for good. We, we should strive for good. We should seek to live lives, lives that reflect goodness. Because really, it's to our advantage. And throughout the scriptures, you find admonitions to the, to, to the people of God to seek to live lives of goodness, to be good, because it does affect the way that others look upon you. And so I think about in Psalms 37, in Psalm 37, one of my favorite psalms, he says in verse 3, the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourselves also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Further in that same psalm, in Psalm 37, verse 23, he says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And all through the Proverbs and other portions of the Old Testament, it talks about the importance of Christians, God's people, striving to live a life of goodness 
In 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, Always pursue what is good, both for you and for all. That should be the desire of every believer, every follower of Christ. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2 of Titus, these words in verse 7 and 8. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And then John, oh, the third epistle of John in verse 11 the Apostle John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So you see, it's important that we make it a priority in our lives to go out there and to live lives of goodness. Because that gives a good impression to those around us. Even those that would seek to ridicule you. Even those that, do, that disagree with your faith convictions. Those who might be your potential enemies. Listen. When we have a zeal for good and we seek to live good lives of lives of goodness, we may be actually tempering their suffering towards us or their intent to cause suffering for us. It does, as Peter was saying, you know, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, you can cause people to get angry and want to do harm to you. But live your life in a way that generates goodness back towards you. Listen to what Paul said in Romans in chapter 12 in verse 20. He's quoting here from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. But listen to these words. He's speaking to the Christians at Rome. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That comes out of Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so Paul understands the importance. Whenever you have an opportunity with people that you know disagree with you, the people that don't share your convictions, people that might be potentially an adversary, look for ways to overcome the evil in their heart with the goodness in your own. And that is a way of tempering that. Oftentimes the believer's zeal for godliness may deter the sinister notions of an evil person. This is what Peter is saying here. Be good. Strive to live good. He said that earlier in chapter 2. As we were walking through chapter 2, he also touched on that in verse 12. When he says, Having your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Those words probably look familiar because that's what we read responsively, or we read just prior to the uh, offering of our prayer of confession. So when it comes to suffering, we have a matter in this thing. But don't, don't give the ungodly crowd reason to be angry at you you know live a good life show the goodness of christ wherever you may go exercise that in your demons with people out there in society you know you don't want to let people use your ungodly attitude or your ungodly actions or your behavior you know don't go out there and be hypocritical don't be obstinate and, and judgmental. I wouldn't encourage you to go over to Haynes Mall and single out the biggest, burliest guy and say, hey, you, uncircumcised 
uh, Philistine, huh, come over here. Don't you know that you're going to go to hell? <laughs> Chances are he'll say, no. Don't you know you're going to go to the hospital? I mean, there, there, there's a lot of room for tact and common sense in how we deal with those people who may disagree with us. But Peter helps us also to understand that those who suffer for the Lord will be blessed. When we suffer for righteousness. Now folks, Peter is not including in this discourse those who are claiming to be Christians who engage in ungodly behavior, who commit sin, and they suffer the consequences of their sin. That's not what Peter's talking about. You deserve what you get then. You go out there and break the law. Don't say hallelujah. I got arrested for driving drunk. You know, I'm a, I'm a saint, you know, suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're suffering because you're a criminal. And you're stupid. So, okay. But, but when we suffer for righteousness, it's a different matter. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, in that wonderful discourse we know as the, the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus understood that. And he's telling his disciples that those who suffer for the sake of the kingdom, and we're talking about a half of a billion of people across the globe today, in this 21st century, who are suffering like that. We're talking about 90,000 believers in this century, 21st century, who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, for righteousness sake. What does Jesus have to say to those who suffer so for the sake of Christ? He says they are blessed. Jesus also forewarned his followers that they would suffer as they follow Christ. And Peter does too here in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. There's all kinds of rattling of sabers out there now in our culture particularly for anybody that wants to stand on the truth of the Word of God. If you claim to be a biblical, evangelical Christian, you might as well put a, a, a target on your chest. You become uh, a, an enemy of this humanistic, secular, pagan society. Oh, it's okay if you just go out there and say, I'm, I believe in God, and you're a generic believer. Oh, they'll tolerate that. But when you start speaking specifically about Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God and the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven, and talk about living according to the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God, oh, you'll see the, 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 the hairs bristle up on the back of people then. You become an enemy in a hurry. And they'll make threats towards you. And there are all kinds of threats. Unfortunately, some even coming through our own government as, as a way of trying to hush Christians and silence the church today. And Peter is saying to the Christians, even when you suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, don't be afraid of their threats. Peter's quoting right out of the book of Isaiah in chapter 8 when God is speaking to King Ahaz, the king of Judah. And Judah has been receiving threats from their northern neighbors, the nation of Israel and Syria. And they're threatening the king, King Ahaz in Judah. And God is saying to Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet, don't be threatened by their threats. 
Don't be intimidated. You stand firm in your faith and your trust in me. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to kill both soul and body in hell. Listen, we need not fear those who would threaten us simply because we stand on our biblical convictions and our faith in Jesus Christ. We need only to fear the Lord. And I say that in terms of our reverence and deep respect for God and our commitment to be obedient to Him. You know, Peter, when we get over to chapter 5 in verse 10, he will expand a little bit more upon this idea of the blessing of, of, of suffering for righteousness' sake. Look at verse 10 in, in chapter 5. But may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Brothers and sisters, the suffering, I don't care how intense or to what level it is, however you may suffer for the cause of Christ and for righteousness today, I promise you, based upon the teachings of the Word of God, you will receive blessings in heaven. Who amongst us doesn't want to stand in the presence of the Lamb of God and look at His nail-scarred hands and see Him look into your face and say, Well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that He knows everything that you have suffered on this side of eternity. He knows everything that you have lost because of your conviction to stand with Him. Listen, we will be blessed. And we are blessed even when we choose to suffer for the cause of righteousness today. But as we move further in this passage that we're looking at, consider not only the blessings in suffering for righteousness, but would you consider also the opportunities in suffering for righteousness? The opportunities in suffering for righteousness. You know, the Apostle Paul understood suffering, didn't he? My goodness, he suffered in so many different ways because of his faithful conviction to follow Christ no matter where and to boldly proclaim the truth in the face of adversity. Paul even knew what it was like to suffer physically. He talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that, that he besought the Lord three times because of the thorn in his flesh. And Jesus' reply was to, to Paul was, My grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, you will find my strength. My strength is perfected in your weakness. And Paul proclaimed, he says, Well, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Sure, I'll suffer. Because I understand that through my suffering, there is an opportunity to receive the strength of God. I think about so many people that we know, many in our own church family who suffer on a regular basis, sometimes through disease or disability. And it's not just a, a, a hit and miss thing, it's an everyday thing. Struggling with pain and restrictions. And, and, and you know, yeah, that's a part of life. A part of your life. But let me tell you something, God knows better than anybody what you suffer every day. And you know, your attitude in your suffering speaks volumes about your love for the Lord and your trust in the Lord and your confidence in the Lord that somehow, someway, He will see you through. And what a blessing you are to those of us who watch you on a daily basis. But then other times when Christians suffer, 
for the cause of Christ. Peter knew about this. Peter knew what it was like to stand with conviction, to, to, to preach the Word of God and to receive threats. When we walk through the book of Acts, you may recall in chapter 5 when Peter and the other apostles were arrested simply because they were proclaiming the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven and was the only way to salvation. And the same murderous Jewish leadership that orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ had them arrested. And you may recall back then, if you don't, go back and read chapter 5 of Acts again. And look at the response of Peter and John and James and all the apostles as they stood before this, this group, this hostile group of the Sanhedrin. And, and they were threatened not to preach Christ anymore. And then they were beaten severely. And then they were released. And immediately when they went out, it says they went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for this name of Jesus Christ. And what did they do? Pack up their wagons and move to another part of the Roman Empire? No, they went right back to the temple complex and started preaching again. They counted a glorious, wonderful blessing, an opportunity. They saw their suffering as an opportunity to defend the faith, and so should we. Look what Peter says in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now folks, that's not just a bunch of theological jargon. It speaks of your daily relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. To sanctify someone or to sanctify something is to set them apart, to make them special in your life. Listen, you cannot sanctify Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can't sanctify God in your heart if you don't love Him with all your heart. I'm convinced of that. You can say that you do, but ladies and gentlemen, Jesus nailed it in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 when he said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And when that kind of love resides and presides in your heart, listen, Christ will be the sole object of your love and your devotion and your reverence and your obedience. So that when unsaved persons in your family or at your place of work or in your school or wherever you may be in your neighborhood, listen, they will see, they will sense, they will observe evidence of the fact that the number one first and foremost love of your life is Christ Jesus and that you have set him apart from everything else your family your job your career your social aspirations educational aspirations there's nothing that takes the place of Jesus in your life and that's what Peter's saying sanctify the Lord God in your heart why? so that you will always be ready to give a defense and he uses that word apologia from which we get apologetics. In other words, to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have the opportunity to share when people see our lives and they see us going through times of hardship and struggle and they observe the peaceful and quiet demeanor in your, in your life, in the way that you handle the storms of life. They, they look at you. They look at the way you handle your problems. They look at the way you face a crisis. They look at the way that you face heartbreak and hardship. And they notice that you don't respond like everybody else. 
Instead of cursing and swearing and jumping off into a pit of depression, you stand firm. They see that quiet resolve in your heart that you're moving forward. They see the focus in your eyes as you look ahead and your eyes are focused on Christ and you're trusting as you move forward. And they'll ask you, what is the reason? What is the reason for the hope? How is it that you have hope in the midst of such despair? And that's when we can give a clear and convincing apologetic of the hope that is ours. It's an overflow of the love that we have in our hearts. Our attitude and our conduct in the face of suffering speaks volumes about the love for the trust in the Lord that we have. It's a great opportunity to witness. You find a perfect example of that given to you in the book of Acts again. In Acts chapter 16 when the Apostle Paul and Silas are on their missionary journey and they go to the city of Philippi and there they're arrested because of preaching and stirring up the crowd and so they're, they're arrested on trumped up charges and they're beaten unmercifully and thrown into this damp and dingy dark jail cell and they got open wounds and they're shackled to the walls and, and what are they doing down there they're not counting the stripes they're not down there having a pity party they're not trying to find the ACLU to get them a lawyer get out of trouble listen what are they doing down there at midnight the Bible says they're praising the Lord they're rejoicing they're giving thanks to the Lord in their time of, of, of suffering. Listen, they seize upon that time of suffering and they make it an opportunity to witness to the power of the gospel. And how effective was that witness that night? We know when the jail's sails shook and the bars and the shackles dropped off and God intervened and they were able to go free, but yet none of the prisoners escaped. And that jailer who listened, listen, he was listening in on that prayer meeting. He was listening in on that praise session. He heard every word they were talking about as they were praising the precious Lamb of God. And when he saw the divine supernatural evidence of what had happened there, the first thing he wanted to know how can I be saved how many people that watch you on a regular basis and the way in which you handle suffering how many people see a blessed hope in you that generates within them a, a, a true curiosity to say hey well, what's different about you just tell me you, you're not like everybody else Ladies and gentlemen, that ought to be like somebody saying to a hound dog, sick him. When somebody can, hey, listen, your ears should perk up and, and, and scripture should be floating through your mind. You should feel the Spirit of God saying, tell them, tell them. The hope is Christ. Listen, when you find yourself going through suffering, times of suffering for the sake of righteousness, these are opportunities not only to defend the faith, but their opportunities to declare the wonderful power of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of salvation. Listen, the gospel message is not just some pretty Christianized words that we like to recite out there to, to charm people. Listen, it's divine, life-giving, life-transforming power. In every opportunity in which we find ourselves suffering for the sake of righteousness, we can declare the power of the gospel to transform our futility into faith, to transform our despair into hope. And that's what gets people's attentions today. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about the power of the gospel to give life 
fullest of million, even in the face of death, not have any fear. It's that kind of power that Paul declared in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul never feared death. And that wasn't because he was some superhero. He was a man who was sold out to Jesus Christ. Paul got it. He understood that in good times, great, praise the Lord. I'm going to live for Christ and I'll witness for Christ. But even facing death, Paul says, praise God. I can't lose. Stay in this world and I'll be a witness for the Lord. But when I die, I gain because I'll be in the presence of the Lord. You know something? The people in our world are looking for that kind of confidence. People in our society are looking for that kind of peace. People in our society are looking for that kind of hope. And who's going to tell them? Who better than people who are experiencing on a daily basis? The same people who worship Him on Sundays. But let me tell you something. When we share this good news, you've noticed that Peter says, do it with meekness and with fear. You don't walk around as if you got the key to some secret formula. You don't go around with a sense of arrogance. You don't go around as if you, you know, condescendingly, arrogantly talking down to somebody. Paul says, or Peter says, you share the great power of the good news and the hope that is in you. You do this in meekness and in fear. Peter goes on in verse 16. He says, having a good conscience. This is not the only time Peter stresses to those early believers, make sure you have a good conscience. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, and let me tell you something, if people aren't doing it now, chances are they will. There are evil people out there, people who hate Christ and hate the cause of Christ and they hate Christians. And listen, they'll tell anything they want to. Whether they use the fake news or just gossiping on the social media, they'll spread smut about you and try to smear you so as to cause others to discredit your witness. Let me tell you something. Peter says, having a good conscience. How can you have a good conscience? First and foremost, make sure that you are in a good standing with God. How can you have a good standing with Holy God? You make sure that you know His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have given your life to Him, and that you have committed your life to Him, and you are walking obediently in, in the Word of God, and you know then that you have a good conscience, and you'll be able to stand, no matter what people say. Those who, Peter says, who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It'll backfire on them eventually when they try to create trouble for a follower of Christ. But look what he says in verse 17. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, Paul, I mean Peter reiterates what he said earlier there in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It's the same words that we have in our worship guide today prior to the prayer of confession. Make sure you don't give them calls, justified calls, to undermine your witness. Have a good conscience before the Lord. So as we look at the sufferings that or the blessings that come through suffering for righteousness and we consider the opportunities that come through suffering for righteousness as we look at the latter verses 18 through 22 I, I challenge you and urge you to consider what Peter's saying in these last verses about what I consider to be the ultimate triumph 
in suffering for righteousness. The ultimate triumph in suffering for righteousness. As you look there at verse 18, he talks, he makes it very clear right from the get-go that Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. There is no better example. There is no better model in all the world when it comes to facing suffering at, for righteousness. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. We've looked at this before, but it, it bears repeating. He says, Paul, Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You want to know how you face Suffering for righteousness sake? You want to know how you live your life? How you conduct yourself? What types of things should you do? Look to Christ. He's the best example. He's the ultimate example. Now going back to verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. You understand the sinless Son of God suffered in order to fulfill the Father's will. What was the Father's will in sending Christ into this world? That He as a propitiation for our sins, that He as a precious suffering Lamb of God would give His very sinless life, shed His atoning blood on a cross so that wicked, de depraved, wicked sinners like us would be reconciled to God. The purpose of Christ was to bring us to God. Look what he says there in verse 18. That he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. We see his substitutionary atoning death was sufficient to ensure our salvation. That's why it says once for all. These people that try to pr pr promote this false theology that you lose your salvation, folks, they need to read this. Jesus died once. And the one time that He died on the cross was absolutely, totally sufficient to cover the price for all the sins of every person in every age who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ if you could lose your salvation because of sin, or if I could lose my salvation because of sin, do you understand that that would incredibly require Christ to go back to the cross again and again and again? But His death on the cross was all sufficient. And because of that, He only suffered, died once for the sins of sinners like you and me. I think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin... To become sin for us. Why? That we might receive the righteousness of God. Or have the righteousness of God in Him. That was the purpose of Jesus dying on that cross. He, he opened the way for lost, depraved sinners. To have access to holy God. You don't take sinfulness into the presence of holy God. And yet the day that Jesus died on the cross. The hour that He yielded up His Spirit to the Lord. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27 in verse 51 that the great massive temp uh, veil in the Holy of Holies in the temple there in Jerusalem was rent. It was torn. It was split from the top down. No man tore that veil. No man made access to the 
presence of God, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we see that fulfilled in His suffering. Jesus suffered. We know He suffered because we heard His words on the cross when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We saw the the crushing blow of the sins of the world coming down upon the shoulders of, of, of Christ and His humanity crying out. He suffered in anguish because of you and me. But in His suffering, He made access to you and me to God. And in His ascension one day, after that, He paved the way for us. Just as His resurrection paved the way for you and me to have eternal life after death. But I think it's interesting because as you look further, you'll find some words that are sometimes debated among scholars and and what this, this passage actually says. Because it just tells us there in verse 18 that Jesus has been put to death in the flesh. Physically, He has died. There's no dispute about that. The biblical record talks about the the, the things that occurred at at Jesus' death, including the spear that the Roman soldier stuck into his side to give evidence that he was dead. And they laid his body in the tomb and prepared it. But then also the Scripture tells us he was made alive. You've got to understand, when we... When we look at this, we're talking about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ being exemplified. Even in that period of time, we know as the three days that His body lay in the tomb. And so from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven, Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean from the depths of hell? Now I'm using hell loosely because Jesus didn't go into, quote, the lake of fire that is reserved for the devil and all those who rebel against Christ and the Antichrist and that group. But, but in the lower depths, which is very symbolic of hell. Look, look what he says. Now, I would remind you, Jesus is in the tomb. He is dead. He's physically dead. His physical body is lifeless. Yet, Jesus is God. He is spirit. You can't kill God. He's still alive. And, and he's not wasting time. He's got a mission. An incredible mission. While his body is in the tomb, lifeless, waiting for the third day, the Spirit, Christ, descends into the abyss. And, and look what Peter says. By whom also he, preached, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, that's important, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through the water. What is Peter saying? How did he know this? Obviously Christ told him after the resurrection. But the Spirit of Christ descends into this lower abyss, a bottomless pit, if you will. And you have to go back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 6, and you'll read in that account of the, the extreme wickedness and, and, and the vile, sinful state of the world. Man was at his peak of evil and sinful rebellion against God. How bad? Noah preached as he built the ark. The ark. He preached 120 years. I don't think Pastor Mark and myself and Pastor... Tim and, and Richard and, uh, and Ramon 
Chad, the other preachers, will get that 120 mark. 120 years! Man, you must be thinking, he had a boatload of souls saved, didn't he? Not really, eight. And they were all family. So that's how wicked the world was. And, and, and one of the things that we're told in Genesis chapter 6 is that the sons of man, and when that term is used in scriptures, it talks about angels, spirits. These are fallen angels who joined in the rebellion with Satan prior to the creation of, of, of the humanity in the world. And, and they're here on the earth. So wicked and so vile and so rebellious is this group that it says that the sons of, of God looked upon the daughters of men. We're talking about human women. And they rushed after them. They saw that they were beautiful. And, and, and they, they pursued them and they cohabitated with these human women. They bore offsprings. Offspring. And so this, this was a, a very vile and wicked thing and, and it was taking the, the whole world to a depth of evil. I mean, you talk about some bad babies being born. Uh, yeah, we're talking about demon-possessed babies. But anyway, we won't get into that. I'll let Richard cover that in another sermon. Okay, But, but here, the wickedness of, of the world. And, and so God judges this group of angels. I think it's interesting because listen to what Jude says in his one chapter, verse 6. Jude picks up on this. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, when these sons of God crossed over the line and cohabitated with the daughters of man, God's in, in essence is saying, you boys in trouble. I mean, it's bad enough to be a fallen angel, but to be a fallen, fallen angel. Jude says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he, speaking of God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, Jesus... Spirit descends into the abyss. He's on assignment from the Father. And look what Peter says. He's, he's there and he preached to the spirits. He's not preaching to people. He's not preaching a second chance for people in Noah's day. No, no, no. That's not who he's talking about there. He's talking about wicked spirits. And Jesus is not preaching the gospel. He's preaching a triumphant message because these bad boys are down there chained in the darkness of the bottomless pit knowing good and well they're not, they're not going to be released until the judgment day. And Jesus goes to the most wicked class of fallen angels knowing full well they'll tell their daddy pretty soon and says, ta-da! Guess what boys? They crucified me. You crucified me. Or the evil domain of the world crucified me and day after tomorrow I'm rising out of that grave everything that you fear might come true has just come true and by the way there'll be no parole for you you're not getting out of here see you on judgment day ta-da that was it I don't know hey you said well explain that preacher kind of like Ricky Ricardo I can't I, all I can recount to you is what the scripture Jesus had a mission to go there and to preach that message to declare his victory to the most evil of the evil domain aside from Satan himself. But he talks about Noah. Look at verse 31. Therefore is also an antitype 
which now saves us, namely baptism, an antitype. It's almost like a parable. Parable is an earthly story of a heavenly principle. An antitype is something earthly that represents something heavenly. So our baptism here on earth represents what has transpired for us in heaven. It's an antitype. So he says there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. But you'll notice that Peter puts a footnote in there, a disclaimer, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, when you're baptized, when I'm baptized, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism, when you're immersed under the water, you're raised up, that is symbolic of the fact that you've been washed by the blood of Christ. You've been redeemed by the powers of His Holy Spirit. And, and you've been raised up with Christ. The waters do not save you. That's what Peter is saying. The waters do not remove the filth of the flesh which would be sin. But the, the, the immersion into the water of baptism declares our good conscience before God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go back and look at that. Verse 21. There is also an, an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's important. Because when you stand at the baptismal, baptismal pool and you give your testimony, you're saying, I am already saved. I have come through the waters of judgment. That's why baptism is an antitype. Because when you think about Noah and his family, what was it that preserved them when all of humanity died under the judgment of the floodwaters? How were they spared? It's simply because they were in the ark, provided by God to bring them through. What earned them the right to ride the ark through the flood? Faith. Their belief that God would somehow deliver them. Their trust was not in themselves. Their trust was not in the world or other people. Their trust was totally in Almighty Jehovah God. And it was that trust in God's salvation and plan of salvation that brought them through the judgment of the waters. When you and I are baptized, we are making a public declaration that because we have put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. And we are in that resurrection. Just as Christ came up out of the grave, we know that we are in that resurrection. That is our ark. That's what brings us through the floodwaters of the judgment of God that will sweep the rest of the world. Now the world's not going to be destroyed by water. You know that and I know that. But there will be judgment fires. And all who reject Christ will be destroyed and cast into hell. And that is a hope that we have. Christ made this possible because He suffered. Had He not suffered, do you understand? Had He not died for our sins, none of this would be possible. There would be no hope of eternal life. There would be no deliverance from the judgment of God. There would be no place called heaven for you and me. And as he talks about Jesus descending into the depths of the abyss, 
Peter talks about Jesus ascending to the heights of heaven. We know that after about 40 days, Jesus walking about after his resurrection, he was resurrected. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when Jesus was lifted up and caught up in the clouds. Look at verse 22, Peter, who witnessed that ascension, by the way, firsthand. He saw it with his own eyes. In verse 21, or verse 22, he says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Folks, that's not just a statement. That's, a, that's an intentional statement to say that Jesus is not just hanging out around God. He's not in the midst of God. He's at the highest place of preeminence that anybody could possibly be given in all of creation. And that is to be able to stand at the right hand of God the Father. That's where He is. And the angels and the authorities and the powers have been made subject to Him. Every angel, every heavenly being, every person in heaven, we know will bow the knee before the Son of God. The same one who lay in that tomb, lifeless, having his body tortured and crucified for you and me, who descended into the abyss over the powers of evil and ascended into heaven, is the same Savior who suffered for our sins. He is high and lifted up and worthy of praise and honor and glory. This is the Savior we serve. As we prepare to have our hymn of commitment, I'll ask Pastor Mark to come and lead us. And we're going to sing uh, however many verses he would choose to lead us, but a song that just says simply, Have thine own way, Lord. I don't have a crystal ball, nor do you. I can't look into your future and you can't look into my future. Things may be going along pretty good for you and me right now. Maybe circumstances are enjoyable, agreeable, pleasant. But you know and I know, just like a storm sweeping over the horizon, trouble can come our way. We don't even know what lies ahead for our country in these volatile in chaotic times. It's important, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I have, number one, faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and have made a public proclamation of that faith as a demonstration of who we are as a child of God. We need to know that we're walking by faith and not dabbling in the things of sin. We need to have a good conscience before God because you don't know when the storm clouds of suffering will sweep in on your life or my life, whatever they may be. And I think it's absolutely important that by faith we be able to say to the Lord, Lord, I trust you. I see the storm clouds coming. Lord, I know that the suffering will come. But God, I trust you. Especially when it comes to judgment. Oh God, I trust you. And make it clear to the Lord. Whatever, whatever you choose to do with my life. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Have your own way. Be yielded before God. That's what God wants you and me to be. In preparation for dealing for suffering for righteousness sake.